0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time. We thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for the person of our Savior, Jesus. Lord, we thank You that these things were written for our learning and instruction. Lord, we pray that we would understand the principles that are herein contained. Lord, we pray that we would look to You, the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord, we pray that we would be wise. And we would learn the lessons, Lord, that you want us to learn from the stories that are told here in the Word of God. So, Heavenly Father, prepare our heart and prepare our mind so that we could receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 13, we get a portrait of of an unfit leader and the disqualification of that leader. So beginning in chapter 13, verse one, it says, Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3000 men of Israel, 2000 were with Saul and Michmash and the mountains of Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah, Benjamin, the rest of the people. He sent away every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel Thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash, to the east of Bethavin. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people. Because you haven't kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about six hundred men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, One company turned onto the road to Oprah, not Winfrey, to the land of Shaw. Another company turned to the road to Betharon and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land, all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And a charge for a sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul. And Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Micmash When you are a leader and when you have the responsibility of leadership, whether it's for a church, whether it's for your family, whether it's for a business However, that leadership might manifest itself, the last thing that a leader wants to hear is you have to step down. It's time for you to step aside. The Lord has put you on the shelf. In life, disqualification can be devastating. And it's clearly revealed even in the current circumstances and the news cycles. Hardly a day, a week goes by where you don't hear about a politician who has to step down or a marriage that breaks up. The passage in this chapter chronicles the act of disobedience that's going to disqualify Saul as God's king for Israel. You know, when you're a part of a team and you become the person who creates the mechanism for disqualification, it can be devastating. A long time ago, when this moss was really green, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and when Richard Nixon was president, I used to run track in high school. And part of my job on the track team was I was the first person in the relay. The 440 relay and the sprint medley, It was my job to hold the baton, come out of the blocks, and hand it off to the next guy. We had three sprinters on our team who could run 100 yards in under 10 seconds. But it didn't matter if you didn't get the baton to the next person or if you ran outside of the line. And the reality is, in this thing that you and I call the Christian life there are opportunities that are going to be presented to us every single day to obey the lord or disobey the lord what's wonderful about the lord jesus christ is that no matter how wicked no matter how rebellious no matter how foolish no matter how sinful you are there's a mechanism it's called forgiveness The Bible makes it abundantly clear that for us, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But make no mistake about it, disobedience and sin has consequences. And sometimes that consequence disqualifies from leadership. We sometimes forget that the guidance for the future is found in obedience to the Lord in the present. Many of you are familiar with the Old Testament story that when Moses showed up and told Pharaoh that God wanted Pharaoh to release the children of Jacob so that they could go up and worship the Lord, Pharaoh's response was, well, since you've got so much time on your hand, guess what? I'm going to double the desired amount of bricks. And not only do you have to make twice as many bricks, but you have to make them without straw. And so you can imagine that when the children of Israel heard Moses give God's message to the people, that in many ways they were too discouraged to listen to the message. Because hearing the message meant more hardship, more pain, more suffering. Sometimes when you come to church and you open up your Bible, particularly in the stories in Samuel, you think to yourself, I can't take it anymore. I can't hear one more message from God. I know that coming to church and I know that opening up the Bible, I know that God is going to speak to me. And he's going to ask me to repent. He's going to ask me to turn from my sin. He's going to ask me to obey God. And that's true. People often come to me for advice. And I guess I should be flattered. But then I'm reminded of how many people have no intention of following that advice. You know, people will often come to the Lord for guidance. Like when Ahab, when he he summoned the prophet Micaiah, to tell him what he wanted to hear. He calls the prophet Micaiah to predict success against his enemies. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 12, Micaiah in 12 and 13 says, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. And every once in a while, I want to tell you what you want to hear. And I'm reluctant to tell you what God says. But I'm not doing you any favors unless I tell you what God says. And so, when a person seeks advice from the Lord and has absolutely no intention to follow that advice, the results are destructive as we're going to see Look in verse 1, fear and panic in the trials of life. It says Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. In the first verse, we have a little bit of an anomaly. Many scholars believe that part of the time was dropped. And so when it says Saul reigned, we're not exactly sure how long he reigned. But the chronology is not what's the most important thing. What is important is Saul's relationship to the Lord and Saul's relationship to Samuel. And it says he chose for himself three thousand men of Israel in fulfillment of what we've already seen in the book of Samuel. Remember when the people said, we want a king and Samuel said, if you ask for a king, guess what he's going to do? He's going to take the best and the finest of your young men. And he's going to assign them to himself. And that's exactly what had happened. Saul began to develop a standing army. And we see that 2000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah, Benjamin and the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. He formed a standing militia, a standing army, if you will, and in, in a little while, we're going to put up a, uh, something on the screen that's going to give you an idea of where Michmash, Bethel, and Gibeah are. Part of what you need to know is that this particular time in the history of Israel, you're surrounded by the Philistines. And the Philistines have complete control over the territory. They've established garrisons to the north and they've established garrisons to the south and the east and the west. And even though there is a certain amount of freedom that's accorded to the children of Israel, they, the, the, the people of Philistia can come and go as they please. And so when Saul establishes 2,000 men at Michmash and he assigns 1,000 men In Gibeah, with Jonathan, it's a first line of defense against the occupiers. But Saul has a problem. Part of the problem is he typically doesn't do anything until he's pushed. Look at verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. The idea is earlier in chapter 12, you'll remember that Samuel recounted the Lord's past deliverance of Israel, that the yoke of bondage and slavery and occupation was becoming greater and greater. And, And Jonathan decides that he's going to attack the garrison of the Philistines, which is in Giba. And the Philistines heard about it. And in chapter 14, Jonathan is going to attack and it's going to put fear and trembling into the hearts of the Philistines. Jonathan acts. Saul responds. It's interesting to me that Saul only acts when he's forced to when the outward circumstances seem to direct him. Now, this is going to bring up an important principle of leadership. There's two kinds of leaders. Those who are manipulated by external forces and those who have a principled position on given circumstances. In other words, there are those people who act based on principle and there are those people who react Based on the circumstance. And just like here, remember, remember, remember what we've learned in the Old Testament example. The occupying of the land becomes a type and a picture of the Christian occupying Christ. The children of Israel are occupying the land, but there are people in the land who don't want to go away. It's the same for the Christian, isn't there? There's circumstances, issues, behaviors in our life that even when we become Christians, they don't necessarily go away. They have to be displaced. We might even think of them as the garrisons of Satan in our life. Where Satan positions himself in the north of our life, in the south of our life, in the east of our life, in the west of our life, dictating how we're going to live or how we're not going to live. And just like there are individual garrisons of Satan, there are cultural garrisons of Satan. And when our own culture will typically pay attention to the church, it's only if something happens... That exposes the church like some fallen church leader or some some horrible, terrible, utterly immoral thing that that some Christian denomination does like ordain a homosexual clergyman. And then all of a sudden it gets the attention of the culture because it reinforces to the culture that they're no different than we are. That when Christians say that they're going to stay with their wives or their husbands, when Christians say that they're going to raise their families different, when Christians say that they're different, that somehow the presence of God and the presence of Jesus and the promises of Jesus makes a difference in their life, they're really reluctant to believe you. But the moment that you provoke one of the garrisons, it arouses the attention of the oppressor. And that's exactly what happens here. And in verse 4, it says, Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. In the Old King James, it's really, really uh, vivid. It says, became odious to the Philistines. It's like the stench of rotting flesh came up in their nostrils. I don't know if you've ever smelled something that made you want to throw up. That's kind of the the word picture here in the Hebrew. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. There's rebellion in the air. And in verse five, it says, then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. Now, again, some suggest that 30,000 chariots is probably not accurate, that this might be just the misapplication of a number or a zero, that there might have been 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people is the sand of the sea. But here's the vivid picture that we're given. Lots and lots of people coming to kill The children of Israel. Now, again, it's very much like in the modern state of Israel. You have six million Jews. You have 300 million neighbors. Six million Jews. 300 million neighbors. Six million people who are occupying a land. 300 million people that are trying to get them out of there. You have the picture. It's that same picture It is a picture of an overwhelming enemy. And when you look out into the world in which we live, you have a lot of people who claim to be Christians, who identify themselves as Christians, who believe the Bible, who confess Jesus, who believe that he lived and died and rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and that he'll physically return. But they don't live substantially different than the unbeliever. And the moment you provoke them, there is a groundswell of opposition. And that's exactly what's going to take place. In verse 6 it says, "...when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits..." And I've seen the same thing happen to Christians. When Satan attacks, we run for the nearest cave. We look for the nearest rock. We try to find the nearest hole. We we try to find some place to get away from the onslaught of the enemy. Because the moment that you provoke, attack, substantially defend what God wants for your life, and all... Hades breaks loose. People make a run for it. And that's exactly what's happening here. And in verse 7 it says, And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. In other words, there's a war that's brewing. The Philistines are mustering an overwhelming army to crush the revolt to turn down the rebellion you see it's never really difficult to be a Christian until you actually try to live like a Christian it's never really a problem so long as you go along with the world's circumstances as my pastor used to say any dead fish can float downstream It's only when you begin to buck the current that problems begin to emerge. And that's exactly what's happened. And you'll see in verse 7 where they cross over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. The idea is they're making a run for their life. And in verse 8, it says, then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. You'll remember that when Saul was crowned Samuel instructed him concerning the things of God. It says, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. Samuel made it abundantly clear. Don't act unilaterally. Make sure that I come. Make sure that the sacrifices are offered. Make sure that you wait for the spiritual advice that you're going to need in order to hear from God and go forward. Samuel is delayed. And we're not told why. As a matter of fact, Ken Chapin writes in his commentary on this particular passage, he says, at this stage in Israel's history, they felt that each war was waged with God's guidance and protection and also that it was to accomplish His purpose. It's easier to understand their blending of political and theological goals in those days than when secular nations in the 20th century quote the Bible as their guide for conquests that are more economic than spiritually motivated. Now, he says that because a lot of people claim to do things in the name of God with the guidance of God, under the plan of God, and the will of God. But when you wage spiritual warfare against your enemy, the moment that you try to throw off the yoke of oppression, when you try to live a life free of addiction, free of depression, free from those things that squeeze you, manipulate you, distress you, you it, 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 it feels like the spiritual resources aren't necessarily there. Samuel is delayed. And so they're asking the question, where are you? And now think about it. Saul becomes impatient. Very impatient. Not like you. When God says for you to wait, I'm sure that that's exactly what you do. Here I am waiting. We, let's just wait, wait wait on the lord not now this is important samuel instructed saul to wait at least 7 days he says please wait till i reach the battlefield wait so i can lead you in worship wait so i can lead you in sacrifice wait so i can give you the spiritual and 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 military Support that you're going to need. And for Saul, now think about it. He's waiting at Gilgal. And here's what he's seeing. The army of the Philistines is swelling. And the army of the Israelis is shrinking. Does that sound familiar when you're in a crisis? Uh, God, the enemy is expanding and the support is contracting but this is the key remember what I said to you earlier people are typically either driven by circumstances or they're driven by principle Saul watches and he waits he sees the increasing desertion He sees the days agonizingly slow going by. And he probably begins to think, what if Samuel's not coming? What if the old man is dead? What if he's been captured? I'm on my own here. And you pray. And the mortgage is due. Or the posting of of the of the uh, that you've been kicked out of your home, and they, they, the eviction notice has been tacked on the wall. Your husband is walking out the door. Your wife is walking out the door. You see the circumstances begin to collapse all around you. And so, look what happens in verse nine. So Saul says, "Bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me." And he offered. The burnt offering. Now, remember, I've already explained to you what the burnt offering was. The purpose of the burnt offering was total surrender to God, as well as a substitutionary atonement. And in the Hebrew way of thinking, it was an offering of a male sheep, a goat or a bull or turtle doves or or young pigeons. And according to Exodus chapter 29, it It outlined who could offer the offering and who couldn't offer the offering. Now, again, in the Old Testament typology, the burnt offering becomes a type and a symbol of the Lord Jesus's total surrender to God on behalf of the believer. So when we're looking at the Old Testament type, Jesus becomes the priest who offers himself in substitute for the person who's giving the offering, and the offering can only be made by the priest. And so Saul does the unthinkable. He orders that the burnt offering and the peace offering be brought to him. He intrudes on the office of the priest. He basically says, This is an, a religious emergency. He makes an executive order. He says, because of the circumstances that we face, I am not only going to be the king, but I am going to be the priest. Imagine if we went to war and the president said, guess what? I am suspending the Supreme Court. Guess what? There is no Supreme Court. Guess what? I am the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court. Are you good with that? You shouldn't be good with that. You should be outraged. Because guess what? There's a reason why we have separation of powers. Now, I don't want to get into a government and a political science study rather than a Bible study. The reason why this serves as an important illustration is who is the true king of Israel? Remember, in Samuel chapter 9, Samuel chapter 10, Samuel chapter 11, God is the true king even though Saul is the king, the true king is the Lord God. Just like in your life as Christians, the true king of your life, the true sovereign of your heart is the Lord Jesus. The way that I would draw attention, Jesus is the king and Jesus is the priest. He is the sum and the substance, the leader of our hearts. Saul intrudes into the office, but it's even worse than that. Saul believes that it is the religious ritual that grants God's favor. And by the way, do, do religious rituals grant God's favor? If you walk into a church and you dip your finger in water and you make the sign of the cross if you light a candle if you get on your knees it is is it the religious things that you do that ingratiates you to God does God care more about the external ritual or the circumstances of your heart you know a lot of people are religiously superstitious They think if they do religious things that it will grant God's favor. Some of you might be thinking, well, why is this such a terrible crime? And Why is this such a disqualifying sin? Big deal! He intrudes into the office of the priest and offers the burnt offering. Here's the idea. He is claiming for himself The ability to mediate between the people and God. Do you remember what the New Testament says? How many mediators is there between God and man? There's one mediator. It's the man Christ Jesus. There's only one person who can adequately and accurately and appropriately represent you to God. It's not religion. It's not Roman Catholicism, it's not Protestantism, it isn't me and it isn't this Bible. It isn't a book and it isn't religious activities. There is one thing that can accurately and appropriately represent you before God. And Saul is intruded into the office. He fails to offer the fellowship offering. And you may not understand the importance of that, but remember, part of the fellowship offering was to bring you to a place of cleansing where you could be holy and acceptable to God. You see, some people think it doesn't really matter. I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to go to God on my terms, and I'm going to go to God with my agenda. But the Bible says... In order for you to go to God, you have to go to God on God's terms. And God's terms are the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go to God on God's terms, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have this great privilege. You can approach the Lord and you can speak to the Lord. You can confess your sin and you can expect forgiveness of sin. That's clearly the problem. He disobeys the commandment of God. He elects to go to God on his own terms. And look in verse 10. It says, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. You can almost hear a sigh of relief come from the text. Samuel's finally here. And look what it says. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And I'm going to suggest to you that he has a smile on his face and his arms are wide open. And he's thankful because when Samuel arrives, the man of God is here. The seer is present. He feels like the presence of the prophet will ensure victory. I'm going to suggest to you that Saul has no idea that the rebuke is coming. And it says in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? Doesn't that sound reminiscent of, of, of something that happened earlier in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were on the run? Where are you? What is it that you've done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, armies of tri- Huge amounts of uh, defection and that you didn't come within the days appointed. It's your fault that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Look at those, that expression. I felt compelled feeling. I felt compelled. Remember, I saw them growing stronger and stronger. I saw our resources getting weaker and weaker. I know that God had said certain things, but this is a national emergency. And I've made a presidential order. And the presidential order seemed that under the circumstances, it makes perfect sense that under these mitigating circumstances, I should disobey God. Sound familiar to you? You have to understand something. There's extraordinary circumstances revolving around my rebellion and my disobedience. How could something be wrong when it feels so right? Right. You know, sometimes we look back on our disobedience and we remember how easy it is to rationalize our behavior. Remember what the word rationalize means. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. The pressure of the outward circumstance, the failure of Samuel to show up at the appointed time, goads Saul into disobeying the commandment of the Lord. And that's exactly what happens to the Christian. The enemy mounts an attack. And the outward circumstances, the pain, the loneliness, the suffering, the emptiness, the darkness, goads us into disobeying the commandment of the Lord. Listen carefully. Saul lacks faith in God. If you were to have a conversation with Saul and you said, tell me a little bit about yourself. He says, I'm a Jew and I was raised as a Jew and my father was a Jew and his father before him. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we're Jews. We're observant Jews. We we believe the Torah. We believe the Bible. We believe the sacrifices. We're observant Jews. But he doesn't really have faith in God. Listen carefully. Saul's actions prove his lack of faith in the Lord. Saul opts for his own reason rather than God's revealed will. Those are the choices. I can obey God or I can disobey God. God has spoken on this particular subject, but I feel differently. Of course, none of you have ever been in a situation where you felt something really, really profoundly and God had spoken very, very clearly on the subject and you opted to do what you did based on how you felt and instead of what the Bible says. But since I've got the microphone, I guess I'll be the one to admit it. And there have been times in my life where I felt the need to do a particular thing, and it was wrong. And when God, God has spoken on a particular issue, we shouldn't have to debate the issue. If God has spoken concerning sexual immorality, you shouldn't have to debate the issue. If God has spoken on the issue of stealing, you shouldn't have to debate the issue. If God has revealed the circumstances, then we shouldn't have to debate it Remember what's happening in the delay. God is testing Saul. How did he do? You know, there's two kinds of tests and there's two kinds of failure. There's the forgiving kind. And there's the unforgiving kind. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Am I suggesting to you that we as Christians fail and there's no forgiveness available for us? That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I am suggesting that certain kinds of rebellion and certain kinds of disobedience and certain kinds of failure are less forgiving. And let me give you an example. Imagine you're an airline pilot and you have to do certain things a certain way and you fail to do it. And the consequences of your failure to do it is 200 people die in a plane crash. It's pretty unforgiving, isn't it? There's not a whole lot of margin for error if you have the responsibility of being a pilot. If you're a doctor and you're a brain surgeon, there's not a whole lot of room for error. If you are a medical doctor providing help and encouragement, there may not be a whole lot of room for error. We live in a world As Christians, of grace and mercy and forgiveness and support. But sometimes we make choices. And those choices have unintended consequences. And Saul is about to discover that there's no ingredient more basic to faith than obedience to God. We hear it reiterated over and over again in the New Testament. On Sundays we're going through the book of John and remember Jesus says, if you love Me, keep My commandments. Look, Jesus says, I've done everything that My Father's asked Me to do and now I'm asking you to do everything that I've asked you to do. And the Bible says in 1 John that His commandments aren't burdensome. It isn't a a big, fat, stinking drag. The Bible says that Jesus' commandments are for your good and for His glory. You're to love the Lord. You're to love each other. You're to walk in humility and holiness and obedience to the Lord. Obedience is the portal to blessing. And rebellion and disobedience hurts us. It hurts our marriage. It hurts our relationship with our children. It hurts in every single circumstance. It hurts in the church. It is not faith. Listen carefully. It is not faith that provoked Saul to offer the sacrifice. He he didn't do it because he says, I'm a faithful man. I'm a religious man and I'm an observant Jew. And I'm going to offer this sacrifice out of the, because that's what God wants. It was fear that motivated him. It wasn't faith that motivated him. He saw the enemy growing, and he saw his resources shrinking. And he did what he thought he had to do. He took matters into his own hand. But you would, you would never do that, would you? You would never do that. Tragically, I've done that. And it's bad enough that I do it. We compound the circumstance by making excuses. And that's exactly what Saul winds up doing. And the series of rationalizations, plausible but untrue excuses and people who study human nature and pastors are one of those types of people. We are people who look at people and we study people. I study you. I study the Bible, but I also study you. Don Wilder wrote, excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. And here are his four excuses. Number one, the troops were fleeing the field of battle. Number two, the delay of Samuel. Number three, the massive troop of mobilization by the Philistines. Number four, the desperate need to seek the Lord's favor before the attack of the Philistines was launched against Israel. And the fourth one will come back and haunt him literally later. Remember, Saul is going to go through a series of circumstances that are going to spell his demise and he is going to want to get supernatural information from a supernatural source in order to guide him in the direction that he wants to go, but he's willing to compromise in order to do it. Saul confesses his fear facing the Philistines without the help of the Lord. But you know what all of this Proves is Saul a person who's driven by a principled commitment to keep the commandments of the Lord or by the external pressure? Yeah, it is the external pressure. I think we're all in different places in our life or sometimes the overwhelming external pressures seem like we have no choice but to cave into them but as principle grows as understanding grows as commitment to the lord grows as you read your bible and you enter into fellowship and you ask and answer the question is this right Or is this wrong? Has God spoken on this issue? And has he made himself clear Then often we're still faced with that same judgment? Am I going to do what God has asked me to do? And am I willing to accept the consequences of doing what God has asked me to do? The people least likely to face their fears, the people least likely to face their depression, the people least likely to face their problems are the ones who are driven by external circumstances. Doesn't that make sense to you? And see, this is where When people are driven by their external circumstances and they open up the Bible or they come to me and they ask for advice and for help and we open up the word of God and we say, look what the Bible has said concerning your circumstance. You have this wonderful opportunity to trust him and obey him or not trust him and disobey him. I'm not saying that there's no place for external circumstances. Let's just be honest here. When the house is burning, do you feel bad about running out? The answer is no, and I'm not suggesting that. Well, are you suggesting that if the house is burning, I should just stay and be burnt? No, run out of the house. If I've fallen into the river, is it okay for me to try to swim to shore? Of course it is. That's not what I'm talking about. You can't allow external circumstances to be your guide to determine which way you're going to swim or which way you're going to run. There is a certain component of that, but in the end, there has to be a motivating circumstance inside of you, leading you and guiding you and directing you. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's the word of God. because there are two kinds of people, those who have this strong internal personal conviction and those that have a weak sense of internal personal conviction, we will find ourselves where we're making decisions based on circumstances and conviction. One of the marks of maturity, I think, for a leader is that they make the decision based on conviction and they're willing to accept the consequences. When Samuel explains to Saul how God dealt with Israel in the past in the earlier chapter, when God dealt with Israel's rebellion and, 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 you, and they experienced the evidence of God's disapproval in their life, Saul didn't really understand it. Clearly, he's unable to discern His place in the will of God. What is His place in the will of God? It's to be the leader. It's to be the king. God has raised Him up to be used by God as an instrument of guidance and protection. You know, God has raised you up. Maybe as a father. Maybe as a mother. Maybe as a teacher. God has raised you up. And maybe you have lost sight of your place in the plan of God. But in order for you to fulfill your place in the plan of God, it behooves you to understand what His will is. And for you to walk in that will. In verse 13 it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You haven't kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And there it is. You didn't keep the commandment. Saul should have waited. Saul should not have intruded into the office of the priest. Now, this is very, very important that you understand this. Does this mean that Saul has to burn in hell and live happily ever after in complete rebellion and disobedience? No. He's going to be removed from the office. But that doesn't mean that there isn't friendship and fellowship available to him. But look what happens. Samuel predicts, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And it's in verse 14 that the rest of 1 Samuel, there's going to be a rising tide as Saul decreases and David increases and we begin to understand what God's plan and purpose is for David. And in verse 15 it says, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah, Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him about 600. Now, look, look what happens. You can almost see what's happening. Samuel turns and walks away from Saul. He gets up, turns his back, and walks in a different direction question. How do you think that made Saul feel? Alienated? Cursed? He felt alienated from God's prophet and now he's left to face the enemy on his own. Remember what we've learned if we've learned anything? Is it ever a good idea to face the enemy on your own? It's never a good idea. When you find yourself in distress, when you find yourself in pain, when you find yourself depressed, when you find yourself isolated, when you find yourself hurt, when you find yourself in physical or financial or spiritual circumstances that are very, very bad, that's not the time to cut yourself off from God, is it? And that's exactly what Saul winds up doing. We're not given any indication in the text whether Samuel said anything or prayed anything. He's made a tragic decision of disobeying God, intruding into the office of the priest, of going it alone, and the Lord calls him out. It's never, ever, ever a good idea to go it on your own. But that's exactly what Saul does. He counts the assets. He counts the resources that are available to him. Look what it says in Saul. Numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. And then in verse 16, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah, Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Mi'mash. Micmash is where they used to be, but now they've scattered and the enemy has now taken over that place that they previously occupied. Um, Sean, go ahead and put up the uh, the illustration on the screen, because this particular illustration gives you an idea of, of, of the geography of, of where it is. And we'll have this available to you for next week when we talk about um, the plan that's taking place. But in this, you're going to see a little bit about the men from the Philistines and the occupation. The spiritual lesson is this. When you give ground to Satan, ground that you've worked hard to occupy, when you give it back to him, there are certain battles that you have to fight over and over again. Some of you know people with drug and alcohol problems, don't you? Today on my radio program, a lady called in was talking about this situation with her husband, how he had made a commitment to Christ, how he was involved with drugs and alcohol, and then he quote-unquote relapsed back into drugs and alcohol. Is it possible for a person who's made a profession of faith to have failures and struggles and setbacks? The answer is yes. If we're honest with ourselves, because there are struggles and setbacks... Sometimes we have to fight old battles all over again. And that's exactly what's going to happen to the children of Israel. The Philistines are now encamped in Michmash. Saul has established a new command post in Gibeah of Benjamin. In a sense, by returning to Gibeah of Benjamin, Saul acknowledges a sort of a no contest In other words, here's what's happening with Saul. Saul is leaving the plane of the battlefield and he has basically come to the conclusion that we're about to embark on a war that I can't win. And that's an important point for each and every one of you. If you decide to fight the alcohol, to fight the drugs, to fight the pornography, to fight the addiction, to fight the thing that is swallowing you up, the depression, the loneliness, whatever it happens to be. If you decide to fight that battle apart from Christ, the chances are you're not going to do very well. And in verse 17, it says, Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the Oprah Winfrey Road. The other turned to the land of Shaul. In verse 18, another company turned to the road to Betharon, And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. If you've ever gone from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it's that vast expanse that you see that opens up before you the Dead Sea. But here's the important point about it. The Philistines send out three major raiding parties to harass and plunder and demoralize the people all around. Why is that important to you? Because that's exactly what Satan does. When you admit defeat, he operates without impunity. Little things. Satan begins to send out little raiding parties to aggravate, harass, humiliate. And so rather than repent and rather than open up your Bible and go back to church, some of us live in this constant dilemma of being aggravated over and over again by the powers of the enemy. When they send out the raiding parties, if they can demoralize the people, do you understand what's happening? If the Philistines can demoralize the people, they don't have to fight a major battle. They don't have to expend resources. They don't have to worry about casualties. This is what's interesting for you. The battle has already been fought for you. Jesus has already won the battle. When Jesus went to the cross and when He died on the cross and when He rose from the dead, every spiritual resource became available for you to win the war. Because Christ has already won the war. But you know what happened to Saul? He felt sorry for himself. And his sorrow led to inactivity. And with sorrow and inactivity, it gave overwhelming strength and power of the Philistines. And in the face of the enemy, in the face of the overwhelming opposition, Saul becomes paralyzed. Have you ever been so afraid you had no idea what to do? That's exactly what's happening. He knows that the raiding parties have gone out. But he does nothing to stop them. Because I'm going to suggest to you that from his perspective, the whole situation seems hopeless. And when you get to chapter 14, verse 2, look what it says. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, That's where we get the word migraine headache from. No, I'm just kidding. I just made that up. That has nothing to do with the text. Why, Why is that important to you? Because he's hurt and he's afraid and he's paralyzed with fear. When you come to the end of the chapter and you see where it says... There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. It just goes to the idea of technology. The children of Israel had no weapons. They had no Second Amendment rights. They they were a disarmed people. The people of Israel were not given the right to bear arms. And you know what happens when you live in a society where you're not given the right to bear arms? you become easy prey to people who would prey on you. Someone once famously said, an armed society is a polite society. Why am I saying this? Because our weapons aren't carnal, but spiritual. Our weapons aren't plows and plow shears. Our weapons aren't guns and knives and cannons our our weapons are not military strength we as christians have a different kind of weapon our weapon is spiritual we have the armor of god we have the helmet of salvation we have the breastplate of righteousness we have the sword of the spirit which is the word of god we have been given everything that we need in order to face the enemy By the way, it's not wrong to organize and structure and plan. It's not wrong to work hard, but but organizing and planning should never be a substitute for obeying and trusting God. Organize, plan, prepare, but trust the Lord. Because when we fail to trust the Lord, we sin against the Lord. And it says in verse 20, But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his sickle. Here's the idea. Because there's no technology, the Philistines don't allow a blacksmith to work because they're afraid that the the Israelis will arm themselves. And the charge for sharpening was a pim. A pim was two-thirds of a shekel. In, In other words, it was almost... A week's wages to go get your plow sharpened. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the land of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. Here's the idea. They're unarmed. And they have no way to become armed. And because they're unarmed and they have no way to become armed and they face an armed foe, there's a sense of paralysis. But all of that's going to change. You know, it may be hard for some of us to think about what we're reading. Here's what the last part of chapter 13 really means. The Philistine raiding parties operate at will. And the children of Israel have no way to fight back. When we face a horrible, terrible, life-changing circumstance, we sometimes feel like we don't have any way to fight back. But that's not true. Because guess what? you will be squeezed on the outside or you will begin to treasure inside of you. The commandments of God and be willing to obey God and accept the consequences of obeying God. Well, What if that means a broken relationship? What if that means a divorce? What if that means loneliness? What if that means emptiness? What if that means I could die? Hey, guess what? I know this isn't going to sound all that helpful, but there's some things that are worse than being dead. The most important thing that we can do is obey the Lord and serve the Lord and trust the Lord. We have forgiveness. We have grace. But do you think a disobedient person is the most likely candidate to proclaim obedience to Christians? Do you think that a sinful person Is the right person to point people to holiness? Do you think that a wicked person is the right person to proclaim righteousness? Do you think that an immoral person is the right person to proclaim morality? Do you think that an unjust person is the right person to proclaim justice? Do you think that a foul-mouthed person is the right person to speak words of purity and truth? Do you think that a thief is the person who is who should be the candidate to proclaim honesty? Do you think that a liar is the person person who is most likely to be the one who's going to tell you the truth. And that's why it's so important to tell the truth. Be honest, be responsible, be pure. In Isaiah 25, 4, it says, for you have been a strength to the poor and a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade in the heat. In First Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I'm hurt, I know. I'm lonely, I know. I'm empty, I'll fill you. 2 Timothy 4.18 When Paul wrote 2 Timothy 4.18 he was getting ready to be ex- executed. And here's what he wrote. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he's lifted from the Mamertine prison. He's marched down the road. His head is placed in the block. And he's executed. And every single word came true. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Guess what? If you are motivated not by the squeezing circumstances, not from the external pressure, but the internal principled commitment to follow Christ, you'll be fine. You might be homeless, but you'll be fine. The lights may go out, but you'll be fine. Your stomach may rumble a little, but you'll be fine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that the writer of Hebrews said that some were humiliated and homeless, without food, without shelter, harassed and humiliated, and that the world wasn't worthy of their presence. Lord, being empty, being lonely, being hurt, And even being dead is not such a bad thing when we consider the alternative. Rebellion and disobedience. Lord, we pray that You would make us men and women who understand the command of God, understand our place in the plan of God, and then willing to walk in obedience in that place and according to that plan in Jesus name amen let's stay